The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now let's open our Bibles, if you would, to the book of Psalms, chapter 29. And this evening in our study of the church, we come to the fifth and final lesson on genuine worship. We've been discussing what it means to worship the Lord, and we have looked at that quite extensively. And I do want to finish the the series, this uh, mini-series in our study of the church, this particular part of it tonight, by just giving you a very simple, practical lesson about how you can worship God. Now, if you look in Psalm 29, we just want to look at one verse here. Uh, This is the 29th Psalm, and David writes in verse number 2, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now, the simplest way that I can tell you to worship God is to give him the glory that's due to his name. Whenever you see a phrase like that in Scripture where it talks about the name of the Lord, what the writer has in mind, his intentions are to draw our attention to all of the attributes of God, everything that God is. When the Bible speaks about God's name, it's the compendium of all of his attributes. And that's why it's just exceedingly sinful for anyone to take God's name in vain by using that as a a curse word or as a byword that you would use in everyday conversation. I mean, that is really something that is a horrible shame for a Christian to do, to to use God's name flippantly and not treat it with the reverence that it deserves. So treating the name of God with reverence, that is one of the ways that we worship God. But this evening, I'd like for us to look at uh, the practical means of worshiping him. I know that there are so many people that think that worship is a, a very hard thing to figure out. We, we just don't know what it is. It's, it's mystical. It's ethereal. It's, it's some strange activity that might include things like chanting or channeling or even some people think sitting in a yoga class that that is, that you can worship doing that. Well, those things aren't worship. In fact, uh, I received an email some months ago from a person that, uh, I was talking about, I saw an article of a church in San Francisco that was holding yoga classes in the auditorium. Now, people are really mixed up about God today because yoga has nothing at all to do with worshiping God. In fact, the word yoga itself means unity with the divine, which is a pagan notion at the very best. So yoga is not worshiping God um, in this pluralistic culture that we have, people have got all kinds of things that are thrown into what they think is uh, how that you worship God. A Roman Catholicism, of course, is, is very uh, bad at that kind of a thing. They uh, mix in mis- uh, Eastern mysticism with worship. They've been doing that for centuries. Uh, I mentioned this morning about Mother Teresa, whom the Roman Catholic Church put on the fast track to sainthood. Uh, she uh, was notorious for mixing Hindu beliefs and Buddha, uh, Buddhist beliefs and all kinds of Eastern mysticism into her brand of Christianity, and that would be Christianity with a small c. Well, those things are not worshiping God. And then I've had people, actually, even members of the church, believe it or not, 
that have come to my office to sit down and talk with me, and they'll say something like this. You know, I, I, I feel like my karma is really off. Well, karma has nothing to do with being a Christian either. And uh, people are just really confused about the God that they worship. So those things aren't worshiping. Not chanting, not channeling, not yoga or anything like that. Rather, worship is a very practical activity. Now, as I've mentioned, God saves us in order to worship him. That's the primary purpose, to turn us into worshipers. And so worship, the thing that we are supposed to do, shouldn't be all that difficult for us to discover in the Scriptures. So what kind of practical things that we do to worship God? And if you're more interested or have a greater interest in the subject and want to go beyond what I've talked to you about, uh, I'll talk to you about tonight, I would highly recommend that you read John MacArthur's book uh, entitled Worship, The Ultimate Priority. And what I'm going to give you tonight is really a summary of the last couple of chapters of his book. And throughout this study of worship, I'm really in, in uh, a debt of gratitude to him for the work that he did on the subject, and we've used uh, some of the points that he brought up uh, in his book. So I'd recommend that you would get that and read that if you're really, really interested in worship. But we've already covered six topics previously. Uh, let me just list those for you. We've talked about how worship is regulated by truth, that worship requires the preaching of the word, and uh, after having given you that point, uh, I was very happy to see that there were people who said, well, now we understand that part of it a little bit better because we weren't so sure that, that preaching is a part of the worship. Uh, lots of people think everything that we do preliminary to the preaching, that's the worship. But the central thing that we do, the very main thing that we do in the church is to preach. And that's the highest form of worship that we have. Thirdly, we talked about worship defined, and then worship must be reverent. Fifthly, where to worship. And then sixthly, we talked about who do we worship. And so this evening, I want to take up the seventh topic of our lesson, and that is the personal application of worship. So what we want to talk about tonight are really just nuts and bolts of worship. What are we to do to worship God? What are the things that we do that God considers to be acts of worship? And it really doesn't matter what we think about it, what we think that worship is, you remember when Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman that she thought that she worshipped God, but Jesus told her that she didn't. And when the children of Israel were at the foot of Mount Sinai and they made that golden calf while Moses was up on the mount, they thought that they were worshipping God, but certainly they weren't. So what is it that God calls worship? God tells us to glorify him. So how do we glorify God? Well, first of all, and, and this has to be at the very top of our list, that trust in God is worship. Trust in God is worship. Believing God is worship. And we have to be very careful about that because worship is not believing in God. Statistics say that 96% of the people in America believe in God. But we need to be careful to note that James said that the devils also believe in God. Demons believe in God. And we're not going to stand here and argue that demons worship God. So this is more than, ta more than believing in God. This is believing him. I mean, believing God without being shaky. Believing that what he says is absolutely true no matter what. And that's a tall order for us because in order to believe God, we have to know what God says. And that's why we encourage people to come to church and why we encourage you to read the Bible and why we consistently read Scripture. You have to know what God says before you can believe what he says. 
Well, the rub in this is that many people are confused because they just think they know what God said. And we run into people all the time that have their ideas about who Jesus is and about what Jesus said. And you find out that they have a very different idea than the true Jesus of the Bible. I mean, this thing about quoting Jesus, selectively quoting him, and often misquoting him, that is at epidemic proportions among those who claim to be Christians. So it sounds very simple for us to say that we must believe in God or believe God no matter what. And I think that most of us sitting here tonight, that every one of you, if I were to come to you and ask you, do you believe God, that we would say absolutely, without question, we believe everything that God says. And we may say that, and that might be the theological position that we take, but in our practical experience, we actually don't believe everything that God says. We don't believe God without being shaky. Now, whenever you doubt God, whenever you step out in front of God, when, when you try to make things happen on your own without trusting him, that's not really believing God. Making decisions that run counter to, uh, to the way that you can uh, serve God, the, the places that you can serve God, having the ability to serve God, the places that you live or the jobs that you take. When you, when you try to outrun God, then you are saying that God doesn't really control my life, that he's not trustworthy, that God doesn't know what's best for my welfare. So doubt can often take away our ability to trust God. Now, I have to say that I have learned a lot about this in the last several months just by observing Brother Dalton. I mean, I, I saw the things that he went through in order to try to, to try to get a job. I mean, just going every 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 way direction that he could, taking every measure that he could. But never once in all of that did I ever hear Brother Dalton say that he doubted that God would take care of him. And that's what I mean about believing God without being shaky. Well, when we talk about worship, I think that you would well expect that this has to be the most basic thing that we could talk about. Being a Christian, this is the most basic thing, isn't it? We talk about our faith. So faith is about as basic as you can get with worship. Faith believes that God is absolutely trustworthy. And we have in the Bible those heroes of the faith that faced impossible odds that they could not have overcome unless they had complete confidence in God. You look at David as a young shepherd boy, and when he went up against Goliath, that was combat that there was no way that David could win unless his faith was in God. Joshua marching around the fortified city of Jericho with uh, the Israelites, not even a warlike people. That was an impossible thing for them to do to conquer Jericho. Or Gideon, when he took 300 men against thousands of Midianites, that's an impossible situation. But it was always, in, in all of these instances, it was faith in God that brought the victory. Now, it wasn't faith that God exists. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about faith that God will do exactly what he said that he would do and to believe that without wavering. Now, to look at the opposite side of that, and when you get a chance, you know, I've just talked about David and the great faith that he had. Uh, when you get a chance, look up 1 Samuel chapter 21, and there you'll find David in a crisis of faith. And in this particular instance, uh, David didn't trust God as he should. And so he went to the high priest Abimelech and he lied about his purpose for being there. And that lie caused Saul to come and kill 85 of God's priests. 
And then in a weird twist of events, the next thing that we see David doing is going to the city of Gath for refuge, which is the place where Goliath was born. That was his home. And David ended up being protected by the Philistines. Well, David's doubt was not God-honoring. Absolute faith always honors God. And so when, when God's people really believe that he can do what he says that he will do, that is an act of worship. Faith is what brings God's glory. And so this is the basic thing. We cannot honor God, we cannot worship him without having unwavering faith. So trust in God. That's number one on our list. That's a way that we worship. Secondly, we worship God by vocalizing praise. Vocalizing praise is worship. Now remember again, we're just talking about practical considerations. Uh, Worship is opening your mouth to God. Now you read through the Psalms and you see how praises there are sung to God. They had a particular order of worship that they went through. There are songs of ascent that they sang as they went up to the temple. And those things were, 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 were particular about what God had done. They vocalized their praises to him. And that's a good way for us to, a good way for us to praise God is to remember what God has done for us. To remember what he's done in the past for us. In the book of Exodus, Moses wrote a song of remembrance of what God did. He talked about how God had delivered Israel out of Egypt. And you know that song was good enough that you go all the way to the end of the Bible and the book of Revelation and you find that the song of Moses is still being sung. And you'll find this often in the Bible. In many of the books of the Bible, Job talks about this, the prophets talk about it, Stephen in Acts talks about it, the Apostle Paul always going back and remembering the things that God had done for them. On Wednesday nights on our, on our prayer page, we often have words of praise there because we remember when God answers our prayers. So songs of worship are always best when we remember events about what God has done for us. And we go back and we think about the death of of Jesus on the cross and we think about his resurrection and we think about the life that we lived before we came to know Christ, how empty that we were, how we had nothing without him. And just going back and remembering what God has done for us, that's one of the best ways that we have to worship God. And this is what God wants us to do. He wants us to open up our mouths and vocalize that praise, acknowledging all of his wonderful works. And so if you're a person who comes into church at the time of the singing and you just stand there and you don't open your mouth and sing to the Lord, then you're not carrying out this particular part of worship. You're not vocalizing the praise that God wants us to give. So that's a very important aspect of worship that you don't want to miss. Praising, open up your mouth and praising God for what he's done for you. So that's very practical, very simple, not hard to figure out, not hard to search the scriptures to discover. So God is glorified when we praise him for what he's done. A third way that we praise God or we worship him is that confession is worship. We worship and glorify God when we confess our sins. Now, do you know what confession is? It's our admission that God is right. It's when we tell God that we know that our way is not the right way. It's when we tell him that we are sorry that we second-guessed him, that our minds are too puny to try to figure out what he's doing, or to doubt, uh, as we talked about just a moment ago, confession is when we say, God, I've done the wrong thing, and I'm coming back to you, and I admit that the way that you say to go is the right way. 
And the Bible tells us that too, that when we think of our own ways, Proverbs says that the ways that we think of are ways of destruction. That's the way it's always going to end up. But confession is when we say, God, your path is right. That's the path that I want to take. And when we find ourselves in the wrong path, we don't keep walking it. But when we find out what we've done wrong, we stop to confess. And we say, God, I should have gone your way because you are always right. And God is pleased with that because confession is a way that we show a true heart of worship to him. And do you understand why that's so? It's because when we confess, what does the Bible tell us that God does? He says, if you will confess and if you will repent... He says, I will be faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from them. And so when a Christian has a clean heart and when he's confessed, what's that going to do to him? It's going to give him a worshiping heart because his sanctification is always something that leads him to worship. And so confession serves a dual purpose for a Christian. The act itself is a way that we glorify God, but then it puts the Christian in the place where he can glorify God. If we're going our own way, if we're not confessed, then we can't worship him. And God doesn't accept worship when the Christian is a dirty vessel. Now, we've looked at that often as we've talked about worship and we go to the Old Testament and we looked at many, many different examples there. But God doesn't accept worship from dirty vessels. He, 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 uh, when Israel came to him and offered up sacrifices without a clean heart, God said, your worship is not acceptable. This is what he says in Isaiah, Isaiah 1.16. He said, wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes, cease to do evil. And then in Psalm 24, beginning in verse 3, It says, who shall ascend into the holy hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And then you go a little bit further in that psalm and you find the results of, of, the, of the people who have clean hands and a pure heart. It says in Psalm 24, 9, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory, Selah. When we are confessed, when we're going the right way, when we've been cleaned up by that confession, that's when the King of glory comes in. And so when you come to church with an attitude of confession over the sins that you've committed in the past week, that's when God's ready to accept your worship. And I'll tell you, God won't accept it until then. If we're going to come in here and worship God, we have to have that confession already taken care of. You know, that's one of the things I talk often about when we take the Lord's Supper. That's one of the... That's one of the supreme acts of worship that we have in the church is to observe that supper in what? Remembrance of what Christ did. Thinking about what Christ did for us. And we always encourage people, you cannot receive the Lord's Supper rightly. You cannot honor the Lord by taking the Lord's Supper unless you have confessed. Unless you've come to God and confessed the sins. You have to come with a clean heart. And the Apostle Paul tells us if we do other than that, then we simply dishonor the sacrifice of Christ. And that's what the supper represents. So confession. Fourthly, we're moving along quickly and trying to get through here. Fourthly, work is worship. Now, you don't have to have a special place to worship God. 
Corporate worship is good. That's, that's why we're here. That's necessary. The Bible commands us to do this, to meet together. But we ought not to think that the only place that we can ever worship God is when we are in here. And we've talked about this, that worship is not this building where we meet. That worship is not actually a place. And Jesus taught the woman at the well in John 4 very clearly about that. He said, this is not the place to worship. Worship, though, does take place when you're busy in the Lord's work. Now, just as a a side note, uh, you may not have thought about this, but you can actually worship God while you do your secular work. And and I'm not talking about taking time to, uh, at your lunch hour, to read your Bible or say a prayer or witness to someone. Those are good things, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about as you actually do your secular work, when you do it with the attitude that the Bible says that we are to have, that is, to be submissive and to be obedient to our employer, that is actually God's work. Because that's what he's commanded us to do. That's the kind of attitude he says to have. Listen to what Paul says about it in Colossians 3. He said, Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of God, or of heart rather, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. So your focus in your secular labor is God and honoring him in what you do knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? To think that every single day, no matter where I am, even going to work, I can serve God, I can worship God by just being the kind of employee that God wants me to be. You might not think that secular labor could actually be religious labor, But Paul shows us here that every obedience that we give to God is actually the Lord's work. But looking at it in another way, what is it that work does for us and for the Lord? Well, work produces fruit. John 15, 8 says, Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. God receives glory from fruit. In other words, he receives his glory from the good works that Christians do. Uh, Jesus said that himself in Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father which is in heaven. So the good work that we do for the Lord is a way that we worship him because that glorifies him. So when you put your hand to the plow and doing God's work and you don't look back and you, and you don't become weary in well-doing, that's when you reap the glory of God. Someone uh, told me the other day that when we, when we do the work of God, we don't get tired, uh, that, that it's not burdensome. Well, it certainly isn't burdensome in the sense that we want to resist um, not that it taxes us too much spiritually, but I can attest to this, that tiredness does go along with doing God's work. I mean, you can ask some of our very faithful people here that, that take on two or three different jobs because some people in the church won't do what they've been called to do. So we, we have to take on two or three jobs to, to get the work done. Ask those kinds of people that are faithful to the Lord's work whether they ever get tired. Well, of course they get tired. I mean, the Apostle Paul said that he was often weary with all the travel that he had to do, with the persecutions, with the shipwrecks, with the, with the uh, prisons that he was in. And he said even the care of all the churches, 
All of that was taxing on him. But you know, he kept on because he knew that the labor that he put in produced fruit. When saints are strengthened and when churches are started, when people come to know Christ, that's when God is glorified. And so what do we do as God's people? We just keep on fighting. We just keep fighting the the fight of faith. We trudge on through the weariness, and we don't become weary with the well-doing. You know, I don't know why the Bible would say that we are going to rest from our labors if we didn't actually need rest. Why would the Bible say that? Well, we need rest because we get tired. And that's when you really have to call on the, on the, on the power of the Lord to help you to get through uh, the tiredness that you have and the weariness that you have in, in serving him. He knows that that's going to happen to you, but he supplies the strength that we need. And so the point is, we don't quit. Now's not the time to quit. We have eternity to rest. You get to rest a long time when you get to heaven. So keep up the labor. Glorify God, because in that, there is much fruit that is produced. Now, fifthly, prayer is worship. That is, the right kind of prayer is worship. Jorge and I were talking about this a a few weeks ago, uh, that there are many people that will come into the church, they stop by the church here, and people that I don't know, they come into the parking lot and they just trudge in with heavy hearts and their heads bowed low. I haven't seen these people before, but they want to come in and they want to talk to a preacher. And they want to come to somebody in the church that they think can help them. So they come and they ask for prayer. And this happened, this is, this is you know, a weekly occurrence sometimes. Happened just the past week or so. Someone comes in and says, I, I need you to pray for me. And what they actually want to do is they want to bargain with God. That is, there's some bad thing that's happened in their life. Something terrible has taken place. Otherwise, they would never give a second thought about stopping into a church and coming in and talking to someone. But they want, they want a problem solved, and so they want to bargain with God. They want God to be the, the one who gets them out of their troubles, to be their genie, to make their wishes come true. And so they make all kinds of promises that they know they're not going to keep because as soon as their problem is over, so is their prayer life. They don't need prayer anymore when the problem is over. And almost 100% of the time, when that kind of a person comes in to see me, I'll guarantee you this, they will not be here at the next service. They're not going to come in and sit and listen to preaching of God because their prayers were about them. Their prayers are not about God. That's not the right kind of prayer. Now, the prayer that God honors is a prayer of worship. It's one that says, no matter what it is, Lord, thy will be done. And so rather than always worried about how am I going to get out of this mess, the real prayer that God honors is the one that says, Lord, if this is your mess, then help me to live in it. Help me to get through it. And that leads me to the sixth point that goes right along with that, that worship is the acceptance of God's will. When we accept God's will, we worship him. Worship says, not my will, but thine be done. And that takes us right back to agreement with God. That we agree that whatever God does is right. Well, you think of Job and what he went through. His family was killed. His servants were captured. His livestock was destroyed. All of his wealth was gone. And then God let Satan take his health away. Job 
did not understand what God was doing. I mean, we have a whole book in the Old Testament that, that tells us about this great struggle that, that Job had trying to figure out why, why, why did this happen? What is God doing? But you know what Job did? Job still believed that God was just. He still believed that whatever God would do was right. And he said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. He said, he is my salvation. Now, folks, that's what you call the acceptance of God's will. That if he calls on you for suffering, which he very well might, because the Bible says that that is the lot of a Christian to suffer, then when it happens, you can only worship him. And you say, blessed is the name of the Lord. But many Christians don't do that. Many Christians become angry at God. They don't remember God's wonderful works. Instead, you know the thing that they remember? They remember their wonderful works. So they go to God and they say, well, God, I have done so much for you. Have you forgotten about all the work that I do in the church? Why is this happening to me? Why would you let this happen to me? And why would they say that? Well, they say it because they think that they deserve better. So we have to watch out for that because we have to remember that God is the one who tells us what we must be. And you know one of the things he tells us? He tells us that we are to be slaves of Christ And many Christians don't want to be slaves. They want to be servants. They want to be servants that pick and choose the place of service. Now, they have that wrong because the Bible says you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You hear that? That's what what Paul said. Glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. And what happens when you glorify God? You know the answer. You worship. You glorify God and you worship. So when you accept God's will, that's worshiping God. And you can't do that unless you say, Lord Jesus Christ, I am your slave. Do with me whatever you want because I'm not my own. I belong to you. And so you don't get that look of the pious servant. The Bible says that you become a bond slave to Christ. And that's the very word that the Bible uses. It's the Greek word doulos, and it means a slave. And so you glorify God when you accept his will, and that often will mean suffering. And folks, that's how you tell a real Christian from a pretend Christian, because a person will never consider suffering. He won't consider it unless God has changed his heart to make him willing to go through it. So do you understand that? The sovereign God makes you willing to do this. Otherwise, you would run away as far from Christ as you can get. Because you're not going to jump into suffering. You're not going to accept that. And so when he makes you willing, he makes you a slave that gladly says, wrap your chains around me, bore my ear through with an awl, because I will serve you forever. Now, if you listen to much of the preaching on television, radio, that's not what you hear That's not modern Christianity. Modern Christians have not been called to suffering. Modern Christians are called to big bank accounts and and to material possessions, to the favor of the world, to the contentment of riches rather than the contentment of Christ. And really, really, that's just a theology of discontent because those people can never be happy unless they have all of those things. And I don't know what's happened to people that they can't, Uh, read the Bible, they overlook verses like Acts 14.22, which says, we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Now that leads me right into the next, that satisfaction 
is worship. Being content, being satisfied where you are, that's worship. And you know why? Because God is the one who puts you where you are. And so if you're discontent with any circumstance, then you don't believe that God's treated you fairly. You, you, don't, you don't get what you deserve, and so you think God shortchanged you. So discontent is something that blames God, the one who controls our life, that we shouldn't be in the place where we are. Well, you don't think that God knows your proper place? Do you not think God knows that? And don't misunderstand me about this. This, is, this. this doesn't mean that you have to be happy being beaten with a stick. That doesn't mean that. I mean, although Paul and Silas sang praises all the way up to midnight when they'd been beaten many times and put into the stocks. So those kinds of circumstances can be very unpleasant, but that doesn't mean you can't be content. Contentment doesn't mean that everything has to be pleasant. Contentment is when you accept whatever it is that God has put you through and you don't blame God as if what he's done is put you through some sort of tyranny. That these things that happen, that's equal to God's tyranny. And so that doesn't mean you can't desire a better job. It doesn't mean you can't work to get ahead financially or educationally or to improve yourself. Those things are fine as long as you attribute all the success that you get to God and the successes that you have advance his kingdom. When I was visiting Zella a few weeks ago, she was really concerned about Brother Dalton. And she said, she said I, I've been praying for him And she said, maybe God is going to give him a job where he works in the wickedest place imaginable so that he can win people to the Lord. And uh, I I don't know if Dalton's working in the wickedest place imaginable. I mean, I kind of think that might be the casino or a bar or Hooters or someplace like that. And, and, And most of us, though, would probably not pray a prayer like that. They would say, Lord, put me in the wickedest place that you can. We're not going to pray a prayer like that. And I don't think Zella had those kinds of places in mind. But, you know, I, I like the work that I do. I mean, I, boy, I love being able to come to the church and, and work around people that are here and see Christians every day. I mean, really, the, the, the most wicked thing that happens to me every day is when some of you come to see me. So that, that, that's the wickedest thing. But if, if this, this is the thing. If it's God's will for you to work among heathens, then so be it. Work there and try to win those people to the Lord. You know, we've had people, I know, living in California, it can be a disgusting thing sometimes, and, and places that you have to work and things you have to see and people you have to associate with. And, and, and I've had people come and tell me, I, I just can't stand it anymore. I can't work with these homosexuals anymore. I can't stand the favoritism and all the junk that goes on with them. i just got to get out of here. Well, if God put you in that place, it might be a bad place, but he had you there for a reason. God knows the circumstance. God has a purpose in what he does. And if that's the place where God wants you to be, then you give him the very best service that you can in the place where God puts you. Just make sure this, that God's the one that put you there. That you didn't put yourself there, that's important. Well, let's hurry on here because we do need to finish. The, the next thing that I want to talk to you about is giving. Giving is worship. Now, you, had, you know I had to go there before we finish this up tonight. When you give, you worship God. First Chronicles 16.29 says, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Bring an offering and come before him. And you notice the last part of the verse, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. 
Now that ties us right back with our text verse in Psalm 29 too. That's the very same ending. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And here we find it connected with bringing an offering. We, when we bring an offering, we worship God. Well, you might very well ask, well, what is this offering that we bring to God? And some may say, well, that's the, that can be the sacrifice of praise that we find in Hebrews 13, 15. Or we might say, well, that's the sacrifice of ourselves, the offering of us that we find in Romans 12, 1. And it could be those things. But haven't we also been told to bring tithes and offerings? That we worship God by being obedient to bring the tithe that he requires? Now, as you think about that, if you begrudge God that you must give, or you just don't give, then do you think that God will accept your worship? There are people that have been coming to church for years, and they never yet really worship God, because they cheat God out of his tithe. Now, let's go back to that first point. What was the very first thing we talked about? Faith in God. Trust is worship. Faith is worship. So do you mean that you can't trust God with your tithes and your offerings? Do you actually believe that you'll be worse off if you give God what he asks? Did you ever say, I can't afford to tithe? Why? Well, the only reason could be that you don't trust God. Nobody's going to come here and worship if they don't trust God. I mean, that's an absurd thought, isn't it? Faith, that's the foundational thing. So do you think that God's going to accept worship from anybody if you don't trust him? Oh, God laughs at those foolish attempts, and his laugh is actually a disgusted laugh because there's nothing more blasphemous than calling God a liar. And uh, and maybe you don't understand that. But if you don't tithe because you say you can't afford it, then you don't believe that God will take care of you as he says he will. I mean, what is the fundamental plea that we find connected with the tithe? In Malachi 3.10, God said, prove me. And no other place did God say to prove me. And so if you don't think that the outcome of proving God is the veracity of his statements, then folks, you don't really know God. You violated about half the practical ways that we talked about to, to, to worship him. And, and I know, this, this is probably not the crowd that I need to talk to about this. And, and so if not, then you can just pass it along to other people. And I, I've been tempted at times to, just to put a saying up here on the screen uh, for Sunday mornings. that It says, all worshipers, come to the front and give your tithe. Because those who don't are not worshipers, they're onlookers. God says, bring me an offering. So cheerfully bring that offering. God loves a cheerful giver. God wants you body, soul, and spirit. He wants all of you, and that includes all of your trust, which you best show or can best show by bringing him an offering. Now, let's finish, and I have one more point, and, and there are a few subpoints here, but I will move quickly through them. Number eight is preparation for worship. How do we get prepared for worship? Hebrews 10.22 is the key verse for this. It says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. How are you going to get close to God and come to God? Right there it tells us. Draw near with a true heart. That's the first thing. The Bible says, it's teaching us here to come with sincerity. 
Draw near with a true heart. That means come in sincerity. Don't come in the hypocrisy of self being preoccupied about what am I going to get out of this rather than what can I give in my worship to the Lord. I mean, when you're thinking about self, the Bible calls that hypocrisy. And you know this is what often causes a critical eye in the service? That there are people who will sit in the services and the singing is never up to snuff with them. The preaching is never quite good enough for them. There's always a complaint to be made about this or about that, that nothing actually reaches their standard. And the reason that it doesn't is because they've never thought higher than to do anything but evaluate their own thoughts. That's as high as they're going to get. And so they don't think uh, that, that things are being done right. But, but God says, I'm not going to accept the worship of a hypocrite. If your purpose is to come and criticize and not to help, I mean, if there are problems, but all you want to do is criticize and don't say, well, I have a solution to that, I can help things out, then your purpose is selfish. You're just thinking about self. It doesn't please me. That's not for the glory of God. Come with sincerity. Secondly, come with fidelity in full assurance of faith. How does the Bible say to access God? Hebrews eleven six tells us, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. John fourteen sixteen, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now there, in, in these verses, we find exactly what we said is the, is the very first thing that we, the basic thing, that is faith. That you can't access God in any way but by faith in Jesus Christ. So you can't come to him with your good works. You, you can't come doing things your own way. You don't have any good works. You can't come in your self-righteousness because the righteousness of Christ is the only thing that God accepts. You can't come on the back of rituals because those don't do anything or are not concerned with faith of the heart. But we come because of faith. And if we don't come that way, then we can't come at all. Thirdly, come with humility, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. You know, the Word of God says that we can boldly come to the throne of grace. Truer statement was never made. It's it's in the Word of God. But you cannot come boldly to the throne of grace until you have been humbled to see how totally worthless that you are. The Word of God says that we have an evil conscience. It says that we were the children of wrath. And so our boldness to come to God is not some kind of brazen confidence in who we are because we're nothing without Christ. If not for him, we dare not even make one step towards the throne of God. We don't have any rights with God except those that have been granted by him because of Christ. And so we come to him with head bowed low. But that's not the way that people think. When you talk about prayer and, and coming to God, they, they have the opinion, well, anybody can come to God. Anybody can talk to God. God hears everybody no matter who they are. But the only reason that God hears people no matter who they are is because those are the people that are in Christ, and the only reason that God would hear them is because of Christ. No other way does God hear. No one else is welcome unless they have the righteousness of Christ. And if you don't have that, you stand naked and bare before God. We're going to see that in a few weeks as we look in in Matthew with the parables that that Jesus told about the man who tried to come into the wedding feast without the wedding garment. As far as God was concerned, he was naked. He had no business being there. 
No, it's not until you have been humbled by God are you able to come to him. Now, fourthly and lastly, come with purity. It says our bodies wash with pure water. What's the purity he's speaking of? It's the washing of regeneration, that's our salvation, and then the continuing daily confession of sin. And so there we have confession again. If you don't come having confessed what you did on Friday and Saturday night, you show up on Sunday and you haven't talked to God about the bad things that you did, then don't come. You, you come washed in the blood of Christ and in confession, and you are prepared to worship when you are confessed. And, and that's a point made repeatedly throughout these sermons. Now let me back up to, verse, uh, to a verse in Psalm 24 we read a moment ago where it says, Who shall ascend into the holy hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul into vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. So who is permitted to come? Those with a pure heart, with clean hands, the sincere, the faithful, the humble, the pure. Sincerity, fidelity, humility, and purity. That's the way that we worship God. And you want to know something? It doesn't happen by accident. These things don't happen by accident. You don't stumble upon this and just come in here and you're ready to worship. You can't do that. No, this takes some very serious thought, some very careful consideration before you're ready to come and to worship the Lord. So that completes these messages. Our chief duty is to glorify God And worship is the way that we glorify him. So let's do it right. Because God says the only way that he can be worshipped is in spirit and in truth. There is only one way to worship and that is his way. So let's don't try it any other way. We won't be successful unless we come the way that God says to come. And then he'll accept our worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and We thank you for the truths that we find here and what a pleasure it is to discuss these kinds of things and and really just to get down very practical with what you expect from your people. Lord, we're thankful for those that are here tonight that do have a heart to worship. They're interested in finding these things out. They want to know how that they can improve uh, the way that they glorify you. And Lord, your scriptures have all the information that we need. It's the only place that we can go to find proper worship. Lord, show us how to do it. Teach us your truth and help us to be better servants of yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.